we doing, Parkview? We good? Yeah. So good to see you today. I want to welcome everybody on all of our campuses around here, everybody who's watching online. Uh, today, we are continuing this series called Law School, and it's a study on the book of Leviticus. And we're moving into week number two today. Uh, if you were around here last weekend, you know that uh, Tim launched us into this study and did a, just a great job of talking about how uh, Leviticus relates to our lives today and how we relate to God as well. And we're just going to continue on in that same way today. But before we dive into week number two, I also want to introduce you to this young lady. Uh, this is my wife, Renee Clark. And if you would, just give her a big Parkview welcome and thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much, Parkview, for having me here. It's an honor to be here with Todd this weekend. So we're going to team up on this uh, today as we dive into the second week of Leviticus and our study. And uh, to kind of just do this, to kind of get us all headed in the same direction today, let me tell you about something that happened to me two years ago. I was leading a team of 16 people on a mission trip down into the Dominican Republic. And we got down there, we got the team settled, we had dinner, and uh, we were getting ready to, you know, go to bed and get ready for a full week of work uh, out at this uh, campsite and uh, work site. And one of the guys who was a part of the mission group pulled me aside and said, hey, Todd, I need to tell you a few things that have been going on uh, over the last couple weeks, and especially out at the work site where you're going to be going uh, tomorrow, because people may be talking about it. And I said, okay, well, tell me what's going on there. And so they said, just a few weeks ago, there were some teams there working, just like your team who's going there tomorrow, and it was the end of the day, and they were cleaning up all their tools and all the shovels and, you know, all the paint cans, things like that, and they were putting them into all the different buses and vans to head back to the dorms. And one of the girls, one of the young ladies, who was actually an intern with the mission organization, she didn't feel like she could wait to get back to the dorms to go to the restroom. So while everyone else is cleaning up, she runs over to the restroom out at this work site, which is an old outhouse, okay? And so she goes over there, closes the door. You know, she's in the outhouse just, you know, going about her business, so to speak. And uh, it's not, she hasn't been in there less than a minute. And the floor of the outhouse starts to creak. And then just almost immediately, the floor gives way. And this young lady free falls 25 feet down into just this, yeah, mess of filth and, you know, just crappiness, right? And she just, she falls into this and she's scared and she's crying and she's screaming. And remember, back up on top, everybody, you know, is getting into different vehicles and they think because there's so many vehicles, she's probably just in one of those. And so everybody else on the team takes off and heads back to the dorms for the evening. So she's just sitting there scared, definitely hurt. She doesn't know if she can feel her legs. She's nervous. She's crying out. She's screaming out. And I'll tell you what, Parkview, I'm going to finish that story at the end of the message uh, today. So I know, I know, I know. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. It's, it's my way to keep you with me, okay? Right? Uh, so so, so, so let, let, me ask you, let me ask you this. Uh, have you ever been there? And I mean, not literally there, but have you ever been in a situation like that where you feel like, you know, you're just kind of cruising through life, you're just going about your business, so to speak, everything's pretty good, and then all of a sudden, life just takes a turn, and you find yourself like in a snap. You get an email, you get a phone call, and you are in a messy 
situation. You're in a crappy situation. You ever been in a place like that? I think we have. Most of us probably have. And the reason I bring this up is because it goes along with what we're studying in Leviticus. Last week, we learned that God is holy, right? Everybody say holy. He's holy. We learned that last week when Tim was teaching, but not is he just holy. Remember this? He's, he's actually holy, holy, holy. He's like holy cubed, right? He's like holy infinity, and we are not, right? I am not. I, what I am, I am like crappy, I'm like crappy, 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 right? I'm like crappy cube. That, that's, that's, that, that's who I am. And so here's the problem. The problem that we come to in the book of Leviticus in this point in human history is that the holiness of God is not compatible with the sinfulness or the, the crappiness or the filth of man. And so God's trying to decide, how, how can I be among them? How can I allow some of my holiness to live among the messiness of their lives and who they are. And that's where we come to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. If you have a Bible, smartphone, tablet, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called out to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is the tabernacle. Maybe you've heard of that before. The tabernacle is like a mobile temple. It's, it's something that could be picked up and taken around and carried around and set up wherever they were. And, and this, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, is where God allowed some of his holiness to live with them and dwell. If you go a little bit later in the book of Leviticus chapter 26, God says, I will put my dwelling place among you and be your God and you will be my people. So here's where we're headed today, week number two of law school. We're going to dive in and take a look at the tabernacle. And we're going to look at how people got clean in Old Testament times. And we're going to look at how we get clean today. How do you and I actually come into the presence of a holy God today? And Renee is going to help me out with this. She's going to share a lot of the Old Testament insights on how people got clean and the tabernacle. And I'm going to share some of the New Testament ones about how we get clean today. So, Renee, let's dive in and take us into that tabernacle study. Okay, awesome. I think one of the reasons Todd invited me to speak with him this weekend is because I'm a very visual learner. I love a good book, but it gets even better if it has pictures. Help me understand what the author's actually saying. And today we're going to look at a couple of pictures of the tabernacle. And we're going to learn a little bit more about how it was set up. In this picture, you can see the tabernacle is right in the center of the camp of all the Israelites camped around the tabernacle. That's because God wanted a relationship with his people. He always wanted to invite them into a relationship with him. However, he's holy, holy, holy. He's like the sun, as Tim said last week. And if you get too close to the sun, you could burn up. And so he said, I want to dwell with you, but just don't get too close. I'll be right in the center. And so we're going to look even closer, zoom in on the tabernacle and kind of go through the steps of what it was like to get close to God so that you could come clean. So as you approach the tabernacle, the very first thing that you would come up against is a big white fence surrounding the entire complex. This fence was seven and a half feet tall, so there was no like peeking over to see what God was doing in there. You had to walk all the way around it to the east side where there was one entrance into the tabernacle. 
And after you got inside that entrance, then you almost would trip over this first piece of furniture, which was the altar of sacrifice or of burnt offering. The people were to bring a pure animal to be sacrificed on their behalf, on behalf of their sins, and that would cover their sins. And so God was saying, I'm setting this whole thing up for you to come to me to get clean, and your first step is to deal with your sin. And then the next step is right here, and this is the wash basin, which makes sense after a bloody sacrifice that you might need to clean up or that the priest might need to wash his hands after dealing with that animal. The wash basin was made out of bronze, and when you put water in it, that would become reflective. And so even as you dipped down to, to clean up in this water, you would see a reflection of yourself. And sometimes when I look in the mirror, I'm kind of like, oh, right, yeah, okay. You know, and that's, I think, what they kind of looked in and went, oh, right, I am still covered with sin. Even though I made that animal sacrifice, I still need to be cleaned up. I need a holy wash up. We need to remember that as we look at this Old Testament tabernacle, that this was an actual place that people came to and made their sacrifices. But for us, it's a picture. And it can be symbolic of how we can connect with God in all of his holiness. And I think I'll jump in right there. And, and I want us again to realize what she said is this, this place, the tabernacle, is actually a physical place that they went to, to come before God and his holiness and be made clean. And today uh, we come to God in a different way, it's, but it's still the same symbolic way. You think about coming toward God today, we don't have a fence literally around the presence of God. But as we come to God today, there's still just one way into God. Amen. I mean, so we don't have the fence, but there's still just that one passageway. In fact, take a look at this. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So even today, there's still just the one way, the one gate to get closer to God. And then as we realize that, we also come to this altar of sacrifice. The only way you and I can still come before a holy God is to have a sacrifice given for us, to cover our sin, to cover our shame. But, but I'll bet this, no matter if you've been around Parkview for a few weeks or months or years or decades, my guess is you have never once brought with you to Parkview a sacrifice of a lamb or a bull or a dove. Have you? Anybody ever? Did you bring a, a bull across the parking lot today? Probably not. Why is that? Why didn't we do that? Here's why. It's because Jesus is now our sacrifice. Amen? Jesus is that sacrifice. Take a look at this, Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So he is that sacrifice. And maybe for you today, maybe you've been trying to figure out how to get close to God. Maybe you can just discover today that, you know what, I need to accept Jesus into my life. He is the way to get in to heaven, to get close to God. And I need to accept his sacrifice. And, and that's my first step is realizing that he gave his life for me and he is my savior. And then after that, you move towards this uh, wash basin that's full of water. And, and today, that water can even symbolize several things for us. Maybe one of the things water symbolizes is, is baptism, being washed in the waters of baptism, right? And, and being plunged into the water, signifying Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. Now we know it's not the water, even of baptism, that saves us. It's the sacrifice of Jesus, right? But it's saying that I want to be washed in that and, and cleaned up in that. And, and maybe, 
you've never been baptized. You've accepted Jesus. You believe he's the only way, but you've never been plunged and immersed in baptism. Man, this would be a great time of the year to do that around the Easter season. In fact, a couple of weeks from now on Palm Sunday, on all of our campuses, we're going to have a huge baptism celebration. And if you would want to be baptized, you could come and be a part of that on, on Palm Sunday uh, weekend. Just keep that in, in your head if you feel like baptism is something for you. Another thing that uh, this wash basin could be uh, is, remember how Renee said it was made of bronze and it would be reflective? It would kind of be like a mirror. Oftentimes when you read through the Bible, the Bible is considered to be like a mirror. It, it illuminates things in our lives, and it brings the sin and things like that to the surface sometimes. Take a look at this uh, scripture in the Bible in James. It talks about that. It says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. That's the word of God, looking at your face like in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And so here you have this, this wash basin that is reflective. And it's in, in, a, in a similar way. Maybe if you've spent time with the Bible, maybe if you've spent time with God's Word, there are times that you're reading through the Bible and, and it kind of reflects the good things you're doing and you feel like you're getting closer to Jesus and you feel really good. But then there are other times you're reading through the Bible and you're like, man, it's showing me some stuff I'm, I'm not doing well. It's, it's bringing some sin and some things to the surface. It's like a mirror into our lives. And, and that's just the first part of, of us coming before a holy God and being clean in his sight. Renee, take us on into the next place, which is the holy place in the tabernacle. Okay, so the next place after the outer courtyard where we would have been allowed, the priest would enter the holy place on our behalf. The holy place and the holy of holies is the tabernacle. This is a tent that was set up within this big fence. And so the priest would enter into the holy place, and on the right he would encounter the table of showbread. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's a table with bread on it. Twelve loaves of bread representing the twelve tribes of Israel. And a cool thing about this table is that it had a fancy gold rim around it so that the breadcrumbs would not spill onto the floor. Which is kind of a cool thing to think about God wanting us to be pure and clean. He also wants his house to be pure and clean. But he would set up that place for the priest to connect with each other and to connect with him over the bread. And then across from the table of showbread is this golden lampstand or a menorah. And it had lights or lamps at the ends of it and the cups and they would keep that lit at all times because it's the only light that was in the tabernacle. And then in the back of this holy place is the altar of incense. One more altar sending up incense like the smoke going up as the continual prayers before God. And these things, again, remember, they're, they're literal physical places that people would go in the tabernacle. But even to us today, we can see, again, the, the symbols of how we come to God. We, we think about the table of showbread as you enter into that holy place. The table of showbread being like Jesus being the bread. Look at this in John chapter 6. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. What would happen at that table of showbread is those priests would come and they would take that bread and, and they would break it and they would fellowship with each other and, and they would come close to God. And we do that same type of thing today. We realize that Jesus is the bread of life broken for us, right? If you've been around Parkview for very many weeks, you know that every single weekend around here we do something called communion. And we have a little bit of bread 
and we have some juice and we have that bread remind us of Jesus and his sacrifice, we fellowship with each other and we fellowship with God, realizing that Jesus is that bread of life for us. As you move across to the other side of the tabernacle, you have that menorah, that golden lampstand, and you realize in John chapter 8 that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, so he is that light, just like the light was there inside the tabernacle. And also notice this, if you're, if you're taking notes or you want to underline something in your Bible or write something in your notes, notice that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Everybody say the. The, the I am the light. That's very important. He doesn't say I am a light. There's, there's light over there and there's light over there. No, 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 no. Jesus says, listen, here, here's the thing. You got to know this. I am the light of the world. And this is so important because, again, it goes back uh, to the tabernacle. Remember this golden lampstand? It is the only light inside the tabernacle. The priests would keep this going at all times so that they could see what they were doing in there. There was no other light allowed inside of there. It was the only light, just like Jesus is the light in our lives and in our world. And then finally, you come back to this altar here of incense, which Renee mentioned is the prayers. It symbolizes for them the prayers going up to God. And, and maybe you've felt like this before in your life. Maybe not every day. I don't feel like this every day. But there are times in life where you just start feeling close to God. You've accepted his son Jesus. You've accepted his sacrifice. You've maybe had communion with him. And you get to this place where you're praying and you feel like God is listening. And God is speaking to your heart. And you get to this place where you just feel like God is so close. It's not every day. I understand that. I wish it was. But there's these times where we come to him and, and it's like, man, I just feel like I'm right there. It's an intimate place as we're coming in prayer, just burying our hearts before a holy God. Now, there's one other place in the tabernacle. It's right behind this altar of incense. There would have been a veil right there. And, and that veil is a literal thing. It's a thick curtain. And it blocked out everything. And nobody could get through or see through that curtain. And behind that, there's one more thing I want us to understand and study today. Renee, take us into that place, that Holy of Holies. Okay, so the Holy of Holies, the priests could have gone into the holy place, but only the high priest, one person, once a year, could go inside the Holy of Holies. And that's because behind this curtain, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which is beautifully pictured right here. It's, this isn't the actual one, but it is exactly <laughs> like how God described to Moses to build the Ark out of wood, cover it in pure gold, put an atonement cover on top, and also called the mercy seat sometimes. And then inside, also covered with pure gold, I want you to put three things, he told Moses. I want you to put a jar of manna, I want you to put Aaron's sprouted rod, and I want you to put the Ten Commandments right inside this ark. And let me come over here and join you. I think maybe some of you have known that before about the Ark of the Covenant. You know that there are several different items and things put inside this Ark of the Covenant. But I, I, I want to just pause on this and talk about it for a little bit today and unpack it. Because uh, you always learn something new about God and his word. And I, at least I do. Isn't it true for you? You've been studying maybe God's word for a while, but you continue to learn new things about who God is as you study it. This is one of those moments for me as we've been studying and praying and preparing even the last uh, few weeks. What essentially, if you think about it, this Ark of the Covenant, this big golden box, the stuff that was inside of it, in many ways what that was is a reminder of a lot of the messiness of the people of Israel. That's what God had them put inside there. 
Well, let's think about it for a minute. Renee, you mentioned the first thing that was in there was the, the manna, the jar of manna. Talk about that for a minute. Right, the jar of manna. So manna was what God provided as food for the people in the desert. God had led them through Moses uh, out of Egypt, the land of slavery, into the desert on the way to the promised land. And they were in the desert for a while and needed a way to survive. And so God said, I will promise to always rain down manna every morning. You'll have enough for the entire day for all of your meals, which was awesome. But the problem came when the people decided, I'm not sure if God really understands how much my family eats and how much we need, you know, so I'm going to take some of this manna, which was kind of like bread, uh, but it was a little bit more flaky, kind of like cornflakes maybe on, out on the sand in the morning. And so they would gather that up and they would just gather a little more, like maybe a Costco-sized portion for my family and I'll just stash that away. And that became a problem. And so they were, they were hoarding this up and, and God was saying, why are you doing that? I'm going to provide for you every day. So, so realize what God does is God says, Here, here's what I want you to do. In this, in this amazing Ark of the Covenant that you're going to carry around with you everywhere, I want you to take a little bit of that manna and I want you to put that inside the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the big reminders that would have been for the people is when they, they failed to trust his provision. God says, I'm going to provide for you every day, but they failed to trust that he would do that, and so they began to hoard it up. And God says, I want you to remember those times when I was providing for you and how you didn't have that trust in me at times for that. And then the other thing that was in there was the, uh, the staff the, of, of Aaron. Talk about that. Right, okay, so Aaron is Moses' brother, and God had set up Moses and Aaron to lead the Israelites through the desert. But some of the other leaders of the tribes um, kind of, found that maybe they didn't think Aaron and Moses were doing a great job. Like after they had passed the same cactus 18 times, um, feeling like they were circling the desert uh, on their way to the promised land, they kind of talked to each other about, let's, let's rise up against them. And are they really the leaders that God wanted to put over us? And, you know, no wives are mentioned in the telling of this story in the Old Testament, but sometimes I just wonder if maybe there was a wife, maybe in her tent, whispering to her husband, do you think somebody should ask for directions? <laughs> and so these men rose up against Moses and Aaron and said, we don't think you should be the leaders anymore. We think one of us should be because we don't think that God has you in charge anymore. And so God actually spoke to Moses at the tent of meeting and said, have those leaders bring me their staffs. And Aaron too, bring all of those staffs and we're going to put them in the tabernacle. And overnight, I'm going to bring one of those staffs to life. And whoever staff that is, that's the leader. That's who I want to lead your people. So they all brought the staffs, put them there. And the next morning, all the leaders, all the wives, all the children were out. And they saw right before their eyes that only Aaron's staff had bloomed. It had been brought to life with leaves, flowers, and even produced almonds. So right before their very eyes, God said, Aaron is my chosen leader and you need to follow him. And that's an amazing thing, right? An amazing miracle of God. And, and so God says, here's what I also want you to do. I want you to take that, that, that staff and I want you to put that inside the Ark of the Covenant. But it was also in many ways a reminder of, hey, you, you failed to trust my leadership and I had to do that for you. So you have the manna, they were failing to trust his provision. You have the staff, they were failing to trust his leadership. I want you to remember those things. I want you to remember our journey together. And then finally, you had the Ten Commandments in there as well. And those are those precious tablets. Talk about those for just a moment. Yeah, so God had given Moses the Ten Commandments on tablets when he was up on the mountain. He brought them down to the people, and they were his perfect law. This is the standard of perfection that the people needed to live by in order to encounter a holy God. But if you know the story, you know that pretty quickly the people... They couldn't keep the laws, right? <laughs> they just didn't. They, they, they were precious and they were amazing and they were God's wisdom for their life, but they just couldn't keep those things. And, and, and God says, put those 
tablets, those commandments also inside that Ark of the Covenant. And again, Parkview, those, those are amazing, precious things in that moment between God and Moses, but they're also a reflection of that time when you failed to trust my law. You failed to trust my wisdom in your life. So you have the, the manna and failing to trust his provision, and you have the staff failing to trust his leadership, and you have the law or the tablets failing to trust his, his law. And, and so as I think about this, and as, as we study this it, it, in, in my head, I just try and put myself into the story and realize that this Ark of the Covenant they're carrying around is full of some of their messiness and some of their unholiness. It's, it's symbolized there. But then what happens is this, that once a year, God would allow the high priest to come in to the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would meet with God and, and, and Scripture says, you can read this for yourself this week, that God would, God would be setting right on top, the, the presence of God would be right on top of this atonement cover, right on top of this mercy seat. And, and the symbol that I get in my head, the picture I get in my head, is that God is setting and hovering right over uh, their messiness. Uh, God is saying, I'm going to reign over the top of your unholiness. And it's, it's all these things, yeah, have been things that we have... Uh, not lived up to my purposes, but keep your eyes on me. I'm going to keep a lid on that, and I'm going to reign over your sin. It's an amazing, amazing picture of what God would do. Now today, we also have a high priest, right, that, that leads us into the presence of God. We can't just come into the presence of God on our own. We have a high priest, and his name is Jesus. Now, take a look at this section of Scripture in the Bible in Hebrews. And as I read these few verses here about Jesus, think in your mind about all the different things we've been through today in the tabernacle and how they relate. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Jesus is our high priest that leads us into the presence of a holy God. And think about this again as you look again just at the tabernacle for a moment as we pull this all together. Everything that the high priest did in Old Testament times, Jesus does for us now in our lives. Think about it. Jesus is the only way to God. He is our sacrifice, right? He is the word that washes us clean. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. And Jesus is the one who busted through the veil at Easter time. Amen? He tore down that veil, and Jesus alone sets on top and reigns over all of our failures. Amen? That's who Jesus is, even for us today. Now let me do something kind of cool and maybe put an image in your mind, uh, something that will keep you uh, remembering the tabernacle maybe for many years to come. Let's, let's flip 
the image of the tabernacle up vertical like that. And let's think again about who Jesus is. He's the only way in, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's our sacrifice as we come before a holy God. He's the word that washes us clean, right? We talked about how he's the bread of life. And not only is he the bread of life, he is also the light of the world. And we also know that Jesus is the one who busted through that veil and he now sets on top of all of our sin and all of our failure. Do you see even Jesus and the cross overlaying the temple? Jesus is our way to come to a holy God. Amen? Isn't that cool? It's a cool visual for us to see and remember. Yeah, it's him who did that. Now let's pull this all together and wrap this up. You remember the girl who was stuck in the outhouse? Yeah, some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm not leaving here until we find out what happened to the girl in the outhouse. So you're going to have to let us know that, Todd. Okay, so here's, let me wrap up that story. You have this girl that is stuck down in this pit in the outhouse. Remember, everyone else has left and gone back to the dorms, and she is crying out. She's screaming down there for like 45 minutes, for like an hour. She is injured and hurt. And all of a sudden, uh, some guys who are still there, some Dominican guys, were still around playing baseball. And uh, one of the guys named Anjor, I've actually met this guy, Anjor, begins to hear somebody, hear, hear a voice, and somebody sounds like they're crying. And so he begins to follow that voice, and, and he makes his way over to the outhouse, and he opens the door to the outhouse, and he sees that it's caved in. And there's this girl way down there, somebody crying and, and screaming and yelling. And by this point, some of the other guys have come over and they're all wondering what to do. And they don't have all the tools and things like that that we would have here that they can make use of. And so uh, pretty quickly, Andrew uh, realizes what he has to do. And, and he begins to get down into that three-foot cylinder with his hands on the side and his legs on the side. And he begins to push himself and lower himself down into this awful pit of just filth and waste and finally he drops down beside this young lady and she's crying and she's screaming and she's hurt and he's trying to comfort her and some of the guys up top they begin to try and figure out what to do and they take some pieces of rope and they tie that together and then they make a little cradle they make a little harness on the end of the rope so that maybe they could lift her up from that and then they drop this rope they drop this harness down to Anjor and, and so he's got it it's dark down there he's trying to he's all covered in filth he's trying to figure out what to do and he realizes pretty quickly, in order to get this harness around this girl, he knows what he's going to have to do. So Anjor holds his breath, and he just dives down underneath all this filth and waste and just crappiness. And he, and he takes this harness and he gets it underneath her legs and he puts it around her back and he puts it up on her arms and he's underneath and holding his breath and he starts to push and they start to pull. And he starts to push and, and they start to pull and he pushes and, and they pull and, and they're getting up there and he is just covered in filth. He looks just like the girl does. He's just covered in all of this filthiness just like she is and, and he's pushing and they're pulling and, and he's pushing and, and they're trying to pull her out and finally they get them both up and out and, and over and he just looks just like her he's just covered in all this crappiness that she's been in for the last hours but he rescues they rescued this girl and he has gone down and lifted her out of this pit is that amazing I mean it's an amazing incredible story isn't it it's a true story I mean, I've met Anjor. I've been to this place where that outhouse is at. It's incredible. 
Does it sound familiar? It should sound familiar. It's also Parkview, what, realize it's what Jesus has done for us. In, in just such a similar way, when, when God heard the cries of an unclean and unholy people, he decided to send his son Jesus to just plunge down into this, this pit, the mess, the filth of our lives to make us clean. He became just like us. He, he took on our sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians says that God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Parkview, listen. Don't miss this. No matter what you have done, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you will do, Jesus is reaching out to you. And he can rescue you. And he alone can make you clean. Amen? That's what Jesus can do in our lives. Let's pray together today. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and to carve out time as we start the week and to sing to you. And God, just the songs that we can sing that the words are just so pointed to our lives and they're so meaningful to our lives. God, thank you so much for your word that, that does act like a mirror that reflects the good and the bad in our lives. God, thank you for the book of Leviticus that is... Uh, it's thousands of years old, God, but it's still so applicable even to our lives today. We can still see you and your son Jesus and the cross laid over the tabernacle. We still see that Jesus came to be a sacrifice, to rescue us, and to make us clean. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.